which is me because I need to stay superior to my wife. Right, Caitlin? I need to stay better than you so I don't play solitaire. She's looking at me judgmentally. <laughs> but it's fine because I'm better than her because I don't play solitaire. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an excuse that someone who plays a lot of solitaire would would make. Yeah, she played it as a teenager, and we know that once once you've done solitaire once, you never grow out of it. You yeah. never change. No, it, it stunts your growth, yeah. like coffee. Yeah. Speaking of, that's not a good segue at all. <laughs> all right. Um, uh, okay. Let's give me a countdown. Shark. No NATO. Welcome to Fireside Chats, a program where we tackle the biggest issues of our day in a respectful, courteous manner. We're picking up from our last episode, chatting with the self-proclaimed biggest weeaboo in the world. Robert, last time you were telling us that your waifu is really a 3,000-year-old dragon, even though she looks like a 12-year-old. I think the last thing you said was, stop judging my love, Normie. You care to continue that thought? Of all the opening bits, I've I hate this one most. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't even yes and it. This is no, no. You, I don't. I, I don't. I feel like anything I can yes and after you have sex with a dragon or you like coded pedophilia are both way too bad. <laughs> Oh, you're failing my school of improv, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Grades down the shitter. Luckily for you, though, we're not actually doing that. This podcast is the right can't read. We're a podcast that says to the right wing, hey, please stop with the stuff that you're doing, please. I'm joined, as always, by Robert and Rachel. How are you two doing today? What up? Um, doing well. Yeah, just... uh. Going with the flow. Like our weather in redacted. Yeah. We've cascaded from uh, horizontal rain to gorgeous <laughs> sunshine to uh, warm to frigid <laughs> to warm again. And uh, who knows what the rest of the weekend will bring as I look. I think, was there thunder earlier? I think I heard thunder. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And a little bit of lightning. Yeah. So that, that is my favorite thing about being a door to door canvasser and redacted for a living for a while. It was like, oh, today I will go to work with a parka and a raincoat and a tank top and shorts and <laughs> yep. rain pants and jeans. Because I guess that's all the weather that's going to happen today. <laughs> chaos. Yep. Utter chaos. This is what happens when the weather control satellites don't work. This is why we need to petition the Spacing Guild for more control over our weather systems. So I want to kick us off today by asking a simple couple of questions. The first is, uh, have you heard of this internet thing? 
I, I can use AIM on. Remember was, AIM? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna chat a little bit about AIM. It was invented by Al Gore, right? It was. It was invented by Al Gore. He duct taped together a bunch of uh, cardboard tubes and just started shouting down the tubes, and that was the birth of the internet. Yeah. In, a, in an attempt to not be poor forever, I have been learning how the internet works. So yeah, I will have lots of opinions, I'm sure. Okay. Be, being uninformed has stopped me from having all my other opinions. <laughs> but now I'm informed, so I yeah. can have opinions. Oh my god, this is going to be a clusterfuck. We have <laughs> two people who consider themselves <laughs> intelligent enough about this to have comments on the internet. This is going to be awful. <laughs> At least two. I mean, Rachel. No. I, no, yeah, no, that's, that's right. Too. I do remember you got your, your doctorate in uh, informational technology, specifically around <laughs> internet architecture. Yeah. You know, I just had a really big feeling that it would be really useful in the future. So yeah. went ahead and did that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to sit back and let you two discuss what you think. Just uh, scrape at the walls like a couple of idiot apes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So beyond no, your your doctorate, what and and Robert, what what's been like the two of you? What what's been your history with the internet? I remember just like the dial-up tone that's ingrained into my brain. Um, I don't know. I feel like I started using like I was much. I think not much later, but like later to the internet than you guys were. So. My first experiences were like with AIM, MySpace, uh, those kinds of websites. I remember MySpace. What a time to be alive. Yeah. You could have someone yeah. log on to your page and just blare whatever bullshit you liked at 13 mm -hmm. into their oh, fucking speakers. And LimeWire. 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 Mm -hmm. So we're going to be talking a bit about LimeWire Kazaa today, and then we're going to be talking about... Uh, the whole MySpace, like that that variant of the internet in our next episode. So, you know, start start cobbling together your thoughts on all of that. But, um, you know, I'll just I'll, I'll give you my my thing. You know, it, my exposure to this this horrible web of deceit and lies has been fairly typical for a lot of people in their mid 30s. Uh, my my parents were are i guess of the last generation that had a middle class and what that meant for me was that i grew up in a house that wasn't falling apart uh that they owned well until they got divorced but that's another story and the house had amenities like decent insulation walls that weren't paper thin and support from a community that didn't let the roads ice over every winter you know the things that you don't get in redacted <laughs> you're describing my house right now yeah it's I, every i have Every apartment and house I've been in, in this godforsaken city, the walls are thinner than rice paper walls. I and pulled out a single sheet of newspaper when I was fixing one of the, our walls. Yeah, that's our perfect insulation. Wall. I don't know what Isn't you're complaining about. Yeah. That's <laughs> it's really great. I, uh, a, mute, a friend of mine uh, does pest control and he was telling me about a house that he worked on where part of the foundation was just a bunch of cans what <laughs> that were compacted on each other oh, wow. i'm so, not an architect but 
Seems like a bad <laughs> idea. Uh, that's not what I'm going to focus on today, though. Now, today, I'd like to talk about my family's computer. Now, if my internet sleuthing has led me to the correct place, it was a Packard Bell Legend 606. It was a beige-colored device with less functionality than my Yamaha stereo system that I bought six years ago for $200. It I, was I always have wondered why the standard color for computers in that time was beige. Could you buy yeah, a non-beige computer? There was like beige and then white that turned into beige. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. it's led to this backlash where like everything has to be black or chrome and just fucked with rainbow lights, which I Yeah, hate. well, we never got black in the beginning, so maybe that's why. Yeah, I remember when like I think it was Dell, Dell or Gateway started putting out like black yeah. uh cases. <laughs> yeah. But no, this one was beige. Uh Get a little beige. Yep. It 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 was respectable. It had it a uh, a floppy drive. Uh, the CRT monitor was color, and the keyboard made some really cool clicking noises as I slammed down on it as I tried and failed to play Math Blaster. Uh, Is that when you started getting really into like specific keyboards that you like and dislike? Is that where it started? Now, um, the reason I have a mechanical keyboard now is I got tired of all of my keyboards breaking after a year. Okay. And uh, I'm a harsh typer on keyboards, and that does not work for, for cheap things. My favorite thing about our one of my favorite things about our friendship, Aaron, is that we both have opinions on shit no one else cares about. Yeah. That's I, I get I, one of the reasons I have the specific mechanical keyboard is it has no rainbow colors, no RGB lights. It's just black and it has keys. Yep. That's so all simple yet. So all, specific. All my, I want. I don't want the fucking lights. The one that came with my computer tower has RBG lights and it drives me fucking crazy. <laughs> it's, it's one of the worst things about having a hobby like PC gaming is it's impossible to find anything that's just simple. <laughs> I have two thoughts about the computers from way back when. Uh, one, I loved the okay. I guess it's like whatever the the mouse with the little rubber rolly ball yep. inside. Roll ball, mm. yeah, those are great. Fucking love those. Secondly, the towers that on the ground you turn it on with your toe. <laughs> yes, <or> yes. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> Uh, for a while, it seemed like the whole rollerball rollerball mice thing was coming back in. I know. I was really excited too. Yeah, I stuck with this laser. I think that died off again, but I can't imagine that would be an easily easy thing to put on Bluetooth. I would think. Yeah, my dad was a marine biologist for most of my life, and on a boat, you can't have the mouses that slide. <laughs> Makes sense. So they yeah. all have the trackball mouses. So I did not know you could even have a slidey mouse until yeah. like well into my teenage years. Yeah. <laughs> Mine just fucking blown. I was like, wow, this doesn't suck to use. <laughs> my walls have been painted with blood because of this realization. I will stop having arthritis as a 12-year-old. <laughs> fucking thumb motion. Oh, God. Yeah, I remember we had, like, computer labs in school, and uh, 
every time you walked in and your mouse had been sabotaged by some dickhead who just took the ball out and started mm-hmm. using it as like Steve McQueen and the Great Escape. That was me. Nah, you were that dickhead. You are that dickhead. Yeah, I still am that dickhead. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, at at the time when I was playing Math Blaster, there was not much on that computer for me, aside from Math Blaster. Uh, I I, Frankly, I'm not really sure that there was much on it for my parents. I know there was like Word 95 and Quicken. And I still find my mom's Quicken backup CDs Holy shit. in my jewel cases today. Yeah. So <laughs> constant plague of Quicken. Anyway, uh, beyond that PC, the library down the road. Again, we lived in a community with enough funding that there was not only a library down the road, but multiple schools and parks. Actual schools, not schools that were turned into office buildings. Wow. Wild. Yeah, so that that those libraries had a computer lab where I would eat up hours playing Oregon Trail. And that might be why I live in Redacted today. Who knows? And your uh, frequent bouts with dysentery. And my frequent bouts with dysentery. Mm. It's uh, I am addicted to having dysentery. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> Can you get that like online? How can I access dysentery that? online? I don't know that you can get dysentery <laughs> online. Quick, Aaron, you run a gaming company. Write that down. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the next new big MMO, dysentery online. There, it's written down. It's copyright. TM, TM, TM. <laughs> oh, that that freaked out my dog. I'm sorry, bud. You log on and just poop like a fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> and then tell I'll find it. About I it. won't tell you. <laughs> uh, oh, or so can you get Oregon Trail online? Uh, yeah, I it looks like yeah. There's a yeah. website. Yeah, you can probably get it on archive.org while it's still up and running and not shut down because they tried to be a library and failed in their legal defense spectacularly by saying we don't like that law and we choose not to not to follow it. Fucking awesome. Works well. <laughs> Which is not a good legal defense. <laughs> but is super cool to say out loud. <laughs> Watch out. That's how you become a sovereign citizen. <laughs> Just remember kids, Z library exists and you can find it. Yep. Tor browsers are easy to download. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but it wasn't until after the incident that prompted my mom and I to move to Tennessee in with my grandmother that computers became a bigger part of my life. <laughs> I don't know if you heard that, but Barry went because he also hates Tennessee. <laughs> See, when I was that age, I did not fit in with folks in my new area. Kids no longer wore khakis to school in this area. Indeed, when I wore khakis to school, they basically told me that I was going to get the bullet for being an aristocrat. So I stopped wearing khakis to school. Something that I still tell Aaron to this day when I see him in khakis. (laughs) (laughs) I also had a hard time making friends because, well, there were only Southern Baptists and they found my ways eldritch and strange. Luckily, though, there were the nerds. I found some friends who, through one way or another, had enough know-how in their families to either be online or know how computers worked. I latched onto this something fierce, and it was around this time that dial-up internet started becoming affordable. 
Now, we already kind of talked about the <laughs> sound of modems. So I assume that you guys know the joys of dial-up. Mm-hmm. Yelling at the other family member to get off the phone yeah. or like vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great times. Oh, yeah. I, I you know, can talk about it in a little bit here, but uh, I, I pissed off my grandma a lot because I was always online. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, you know, you guys were on dial-up and that may mean that you were roughly in the same area as my family and that by which I mean, you know, reasonably technical, but not enough to know how much, you know, do much beyond like basic tweaks to Windows and run maybe one or two commands in DOS. Uh, so we used America Online. And for a long time, AOL was the internet for me. I, I was shocked to find out that the internet consisted of things beyond clicking, like, ports <laughs> or fun fun games or ha- whatever the portal was for AOL. In uh, my kind of evolution for this stuff went AOL, then CompuServe. And when I when we got CompuServe, I remember talking to uh, a great uncle, grand uncle, who told me that he was happy that we switched to CompuServe because CompuServe was for serious people, and AOL was for losers. Those fucking clowns. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, he also worked at Oak Ridge and may have worked on the bomb at one point. So storied history of having opinions <laughs> uh so that's a that's a fucking thing you can yeah. do i guess yeah yeah uh so after CompuServe, blessed be cable internet came into my life once my grandma got pissed enough that i was using the phone line all the time in order to be online hang out in chat rooms uh, these chat rooms, of course, destroyed any potential I had to be well adjusted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They'll outside- do that. Oh yeah. And outside those chat rooms, I played a lot of Warcraft 2 and Diablo 2 with my friends. Uh once I got onto the cable internet, though, you know, things started changing a lot. Like Rachel already said, I found shit like LimeWire, uh, Kazaa, and other ways to pirate media and wreck the family PC with untold amounts of <laughs> malware because I was an idiot. <laughs> nobody knew how could we have anticipated this <laughs> one of my favorite computer things that's happened recently my father-in-law is upgrading from his 10 year old laptop yeah and he was like are you gonna what anti-malware are you gonna put on it and i was like it is the year of our lord 2023 it comes with the computer and he was like oh really and i was like yeah and he was like so can you put like a flash player and a PDF <laughs> on it? And I was like, what century are you in? <laughs> I will His not. mind was uh, blown, probably. He clicked on a PDF the first time I gave it to him and it opened in Google Chrome. And he was like, how does this work? And I was like, come on, dude. <laughs> come on, son. <laughs> so, does he not use a computer? Like... For any other thing? He was super, like, involved in the tech world and very good at it circa, like, 2008. Mm. And anything after that, he's like, no, I refuse. <laughs> okay. I'm envious. I would like to be that way. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, how does he do anything? Like, no offense, but, like... He fucking does, do... it on, he does it on Word 2003. Okay, yeah, I guess they're still, like... Yeah, it's just... Wow. <laughs> 
Dang. That sounds amazing. <laughs> he went he went from I gave him a copy of a computer with a Windows 10 and Linux Ubuntu on it. And the last thing he was running on his previous one was I think XP. Yeah. So it's a big it's, shift. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. He he just skipped like so like five or six generations of computer yeah. technology. That's it crazy. Was, it was wild. I think the last time I tried to use like a non-cloud document thing was I, I tried to do like Office Libra. I love and Office Libra. No, I, I like it too. It's just such a, I have trained myself to work on multiple different like laptops and desktops mm-hmm. so that no longer functions. That's fair. Yeah, I, I miss it. Um, it, it, it's basically like Microsoft Office, but open like free software. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's cool. about, it's as good as Microsoft Office. Yeah. It works just as well. Yeah. And doesn't have a subscription. We're going to be talking about this whole ecosystem a little bit in this in this episode. Because I have a lot of strong feelings about this. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, well, you know, it's all built this way. And from- that's what the people come for, our opinions <laughs> on Microsoft Office. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about all of this stuff (laughs) today and we're going to talk about why it was from the start of all of these these computers and internets that we all use uh this is all built and set up to be this way for the benefit of the most obnoxious people on the face of the planet cyber libertarians so jack in chumbas because we're basically going to be edge runners for the next three episodes. Uh, one of my go on. One of my least favorite things about being more and more involved in the tech world, especially not like the tech company tech world, but like the countercultural tech world a little more, yeah. is there are two kinds of people. Both of them are morons and think they're pirates. Like. <laughs> Everyone on the fucking internet thinks they're a pirate. Yeah. And it's like, just stop reading William Gibson. Just like fucking <laughs> put it down. Well, it, I, I think it's like. So Tim Rogers is a like a video game guy. And uh, he does these very in-depth reviews on games that he finds fascinating. And like he, he, he runs a channel called Action Button. And the last episode, the last episode of the first season of his thing, was about Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven, and it it's a it's a long video that's designed to be split into different chunks and like chapters, and one of them is about like cyberpunk as a genre and a concept, <clears throat> and I think the best summary of it is not from him, but you should go watch his stuff because he's really smart and cool. Uh, the best definition of it, I think, was like a it was probably a tweet and it was like sci-fi authors. We have we have created a, 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 a device called the Death Matrix. It's a cautionary tale. 20 years later, technologists, we have created the Death Matrix and it's our new software as a service. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's it's very mm. stupid and everything is ruined all the time 
So what if I told you again that from the very start of this, the people who were most responsible for the Internet were clamoring with each other to ensure that it could never be regulated by the government? And what if I told you that, in fact, those very people worked with people in the government like Newt Gingrich to ensure that the government was never able to regulate the Internet? Shark is nodding like this makes sense. Rachel is is skeptical. I've never heard this. Oh, you will. Oh, good. (laughs) So before we go into that in earnest, though, we're going to need to do some very, very boring work in talking about (laughs) definitions. So Shark... You're our resident person who ruined their brain by doing a liberal <laughs> arts degree. Yeah, I so, got you. So how do you break down the history of the term libertarian? Oh, God. All right. So <laughs> um, libertarianism is one of those great concepts where it started super cool. And there's a graph of its coolness over time. And it's just a vertical line straight downward. Um it's got like a negative one slope. It's just got less and less cool, like exponentially with every passing year. Uh, so it started with like left-wing people post-French Revolution who were like, you know, we tried this whole like government liberty thing. And what we wound up doing was killing literally everyone. So maybe the government isn't the way to do this. So they called themselves libertarians. And they were very anti-government. They had like a lot of crossover with anarchists. They were largely left wing. And then people in places like Chicago, who just wanted to have sex with 15 year olds, found out that you can do that if you don't like the government. And so they adopted the term libertarian. And now it's ruined everyone's uncle who thinks they know what libertarianism is. And that's a brief history. Yeah, I, I think um, the the only bit of specificity I want to add is like specifically about how it became that horrible right wing thing. Yeah. And I've got a quote from a horrible man called Murray Rothbard. Oh, and the worst. His quote is Two one last names. Two last names. Yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is two last names, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> my important contribution. <laughs> one of my favorite things I've ever seen on the internet is that on the spectrum of things you should read, it went from like readable to unreadable. And on the far left was Murray Bookchin in the should yeah. read. And on the far right was Murray Rothbard, who you shouldn't <laughs> read. And all books fall between Murray Bookchin and Murray Rothbard, the Murray between, spectrum. Between two Murrays. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So his quote is, uh, one gratifying aspect of our rise to some prominence is that for the first time in my memory, we, our side, had captured a crucial word from the enemy. Libertarians had long been simply a polite word for left-wing anarchists, that is for anti-private property anarchists, either of the communist or syndicalist variety. But now we had taken it over. And uh, there are people who are much smarter than I am who have gone through long histories about how that happened. But basically, the end result is now your least favorite uncle calls himself a libertarian and has very Ron Paul ideas about everything. Yeah. I'd say that's generally accurate for the people that I know that 
consider themselves yeah. libertarians. Now, I, I yeah, also want a great to... intro to who Murray Rothbard as a person is. Is he gotten a big beef with Anne Rand because he found her too left wing? <laughs> that's that's the kind of human this fucking guy was. God Almighty! <laughs> he thought she was like unoriginal and left wingish. Fuck. Yeah, he oh. sucks. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, I want to do a little bit more discussion about this term because uh, I keep running into this um, in context of people on the left who still use it as a way to differentiate like certain forms of co- socialism and communism from hierarchical or state-oriented political theories. In other words, you might hear people refer to themselves as libertarian socialists or libertarian communists. Uh, now, in my experience, when it happens within that context, it's generally unremarked on and people know what they're talking about. But if the, if it's brought up outside of that, you get very concerned looks. Uh, there was one time I was at a party and someone, we got talking about politics and I went into stupid mode and I said, yeah, basically libertarian socialists. And everyone looked at me like I had lost my mind. And I was like, <laughs> I try and be like, well, it's socialist is the key word, but I just gave up. I was like, anarchist, fine, fucking anarchist. I don't know. So I guess, I don't know. Like one thing I think about is like, why do we do this? <laughs> is it still worth trying to like use this term or has that been so poisoned by Murray Rothbard, Ron Paul, whoever else? It, I don't know. What do you think? This doesn't really go into the rest of the episode. I'm just curious. <laughs> I mean, for me, uh, being like a huge French Revolution human, I, the original um, libertarian socialist kind of people were uh, Pierre Joseph Proudhorn, Proudhon, if you're French, who I I liked a lot despite kind of being a shit pig. And he's just, just like, why? Words mean things. We can still use words. Yeah. They can still mean things. Yeah, I don't know. I just I'm, I get tired of having the the clarifying discussion about what I mean by using libertarian in that context. And yeah, I don't know. I'm I mean, like, tired. I think <laughs> saying you're a left wing libertarian is kind of like saying you're an anarcho capitalist. Like, it's in the same like. I agree; those words track and mean things, mm-hmm. and like can be used. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of fall in the same camp. Like yeah. people don't use like it's gotten to a point where like, yeah, I'd rather just avoid it. But like the we I wish we could use, you know, like So I guess I we know. go back to the central thesis of our show. It's like maybe we should continue using the words and reclaim. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think about that in background. You know, <laughs> run that like in the background as as you're defragmenting your brain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'd like to read you like this is the next part of our of our journey together. I call it the neckbeards log on, and I'd like to read you a couple of excerpts to set the tone for the the meat of what we're talking about today. Oh, this is a particular kind of guy that makes me want to throw myself into a blast oh. furnace. Oh, They're boy. like the worst guys to read. You're gonna love this next sentence. Uh, the first excerpt is from a text written by a veritable who's who of people who make sharks head explode. <laughs> uh, one, a Harvard economist turned professional investor. Nice. Two, a Reagan administration strategist. 
three, a mega a megacorp executive, and four, a labor rights journalist who turned radical centrist and influencer of Newt Gingrich. I'd rather have sex with wow. a cactus. and this text is titled cyberspace and the american dream magna carta for the knowledge age and because the authors hate brevity i'm just going to talk about it as either the cyberspace magna carta or magna carta from now on be aware listener that every one of these guys writes like chat gpt pretending to be thomas jefferson talking about a web series yes exactly and here's how it starts. Uh, the no, I'm not going to do that voice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The central voice, central event of the 20th century is the overflow, overthrow of matter. Oh. <laughs> In technology, economics, and the politics of nations, Wealth in the form of physical resources has been losing value and significance. The powers of mind are everywhere ascendant over the brute force of things. In a first-wave economy, land and farm labor are the main factors of production. In a second-wave economy, the land remains valuable while the labor becomes massified around machines and larger industries. In a third-wave economy, the central resource, a single word broadly encompassing data, information, images, symbols, culture, ideology, and values, is actionable knowledge. But the third wave, and the knowledge age it has opened, will not deliver on its uh, potential unless it adds social and political dominance to its accelerating technological and economic strength. This means repealing second-wave laws and retiring second-wave attitudes. It also (laughs) gives to leaders of the advanced democracies a special responsibility to facilitate, hasten, and explain the transition. As humankind explores this new electronic frontier of knowledge, it must confront again the most profound questions of how to organize itself for the common good. The meaning of freedom, structures of self-government, definition of property, nature of competition, conditions for cooperation, sense of community, and nature of progress will each be redefined for the knowledge age, just as they were redefined for a new age of industry some 250 years ago. So you two still with me? Did you make it up? Those long, (laughs) long... lists of of terms that they threw at you yeah honestly it's like it kind of felt like a roller coaster i was like okay like hesitant and then i'm like okay that sounds okay and then you i just totally fell off a cliff and got lost <laughs> i'm not a, really sure what to take away from thing that that happens with people who write philosophy where they do this thing where their definitions and verbiage become so general that their point is obvious and so specific that their point is irrelevant. Yeah. And then they oscillate back and forth between that so fast that they're kind of like super positioned. They're both general and irrelevant simultaneously. And when you ask them a question is when they decide which is which. Yeah. And it's it's yeah. Chidi's thesis from the good place. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. Oh. So essentially what this preamble thing is trying to do is outline the goal of the four-minded Hydra here. In, in 1994, they are viewing the old ways of civic governance as being over. All of their grandiose language is kind of boiling down to something relatively simple. <clears throat> and I define it this way. The tools humanity used to govern itself up until now are obsolete. With the invention of mass-scale computing, we must reject how society functions and implement, implement new ways of thinking. The governments at the dawn of the information era should exist solely to facilitate this transition. Hmm. That's what I took out of that. And, like, their thesis is an absurd one that has been stated since the Enlightenment. Yeah. Like, as soon as Descartes invented the scientific method, you got Laplace's demon, which is like, if we can tell how the movement of every molecule in the universe, we can predict everything that's ever going to happen. And everyone with a brain was like, that's fucking stupid. And then in the <laughs> 1850s, you got all these scientific rationalists who are like, you know, we can solve everything through economics. It's And then everyone around them was like, that's fucking stupid. And then fucking 150 years later, someone writes Freakonomics and the New York <laughs> Times loses goddamn mind. And everyone um, with a brain is like, that's fucking stupid. Just and wait. New York Times is going to make a cameo. Oh, uh, fucking course it is. Because, like, for some reason... Oh, I'm going to lose my mind in this episode. Please continue, man. So, there are some points in the preamble that make some sense, especially now in 2023, as QAnon spreads across the globe and the far right uses the internet to organize campaigns, resulting in restricting access to everything from books to birth control across the United States. What is clear... To me, at least, is that our, our 20th, 20th century kind of view of politics is woefully ill-equipped to deal with the speed at which information is transmitted and acted upon. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. That that doesn't match what they're saying. though, And I, I want to make it clear that I you'll see their document continues. Uh, the next session section is called The Nature of Cyberspace. Uh, it is a discussion of what makes up the internet told from the perspective of a wide-eyed tech evangelist. Uh, following that is the nature and ownership of property, which is where your eyebrow really starts to arch. This section feels like every time you've been at a party and got stuck, stuck talking to someone about crypto. Yeah, just <laughs> like the end, they're writing in 1998 and they're in ninety four. And these, like, visionary futurists, intellectual children are people who want you to buy fake land in the yeah. metaverse. Like, it's the same, yeah. and, like, it's stupid the whole way through. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, in that section, we see where their main interests lie, aside from fake land in the metaverse. <laughs> uh, the central focus of the document becomes a long ramble about copyright and intellectual property. Oh, and the need to move away from regulations that give people the rights to their creations. Um, now, the take is basically that, one, there is no need to have a large body enforce these things. And two, quoting, regulation, especially price regulation of the infrastructure that underpins the Internet, can be tantamount, tantamount to confiscation. I.e., taxation is theft or taxation is slavery. <laughs> libertarianism <laughs> mm -hmm. uh it's it's them the randroids have reared their goddamn heads yet again 
this mention of the evils of publicly owned infrastructure by tying it to confiscation is such an old libertarian canard that it's on a first name basis with Gilgamesh's grandfather. And these people I thought that was a great joke. That is that is a good one. Solid. <laughs> Solid. <laughs> and it's just like there's this thing amongst this group of guys who are like the internet can't be publicly owned because then it's government controlled. And it's like, it can't be privately owned. Do they know how the <laughs> fucking internet works? It's like such a massive infrastructure yeah. project every day. Yeah. yeah. It involves giant cables that go between yeah. continents underwater. Yeah. That shoot light between <laughs> continents. Yeah. Like, you can't do... It's like a human achievement that would be the entire GDP of any country before 1920. Yeah. Also, you can watch GIFs of cats doing fun things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the internet but, is good for so many things. Okay, <laughs> go on. So the authors have this to say about copyright and thus protections of property in general. Quote, Copyright and patent protection of knowledge, or at least many forms of it, may no longer be unnecessary. In fact, the marketplace may already be creating... Wait, vehicles. I'm sorry. Did you say yeah. it may no longer be unnecessary? Yeah, it's a horrible sentence. <laughs> okay. Just making sure. And yeah. <laughs> these, are, these are the types of things that these people say. Basically, what Chuck said... This is why are, my head hurts already. Yeah. yeah. This is like chat GPT spat this out before it, be, it was mm -hmm. created. Um resuming the quote in fact the marketplace may already be creating vehicles to compensate creators of customized knowledge outside the cumbersome copyright patent process in other words co uh, you know, well customized knowledge a term they used is just they're using that to stand in for stuff that's on the internet <laughs> Yeah. Uh, like most libertarians you meet, the authors look down on the experts and view democratization of knowledge, i.e. that thing you found on Reddit that says that redacted buses are the most dangerous places in town. They view that as a pure good for society and a better source of expertise than anywhere else. Uh, the rest of the document then discusses the marketplace, market good, government bad. Freedom, America is freedom, freedom is good, cyberspace is freedom, cyberspace is America, and then some nonsense about community. Thankfully, I don't have to go into it in too much detail because a writer named Langdon Winner already did that for me in an article called Cyber-Libertarian Cyber Myths and the Prospects for Community. And here's what Langdon Winner writes. The combined emphasis upon radical individualism, enthusiasm for free market economy, disdain for the role of government, and enthusiasm for the power of business firmly places the cyber-libertarian perspective strongly within the context of right-wing political thought. As the picture clarifies what appears as diversity achieved through segregation, away from the racial and class conflicts that afflict the cities, sheltered in a comfortable cyber-niche of one's social peers, their third wave society offers electronic equivalents of the gated communities and architectural barriers that offer the well-to-do freedom from troubles associated with with the under the urban underclass indeed many proponents of the online world openly celebrate the abandonment of older cities in favor of wired exurban enclaves so rachel you know how outside of redacted you have places like hillsborough with like mm -hmm. 
gigabit internet and all of that, it's mm-hmm. because they don't want to be in the city. So mm-hmm. it they make it easier to be in that kind of area because, you know, that's not where black people are. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so how that happens, diversity achieved through segregation, is a simple fact that the cyberspace Magna Carta assumes that its readership is people like them. Wildly affluent people who have the means to be locked into the internet in 1994 and the ability to create intellectual property that will be used by other people and by which they can profit off of that intellectual property. In other words, corporations. No. Yeah, good. No, no thoughts. Now I want to make another point here, one that Winner points out spectacularly. Uh, This document was published by a group called the Progress and Freedom Foundation. And when I say those words, what flashes through your mind? Right-wing think tank. Okay. I don't know that name. I don't recognize it. Is it just like frowny faces popping <laughs> up in your brain? Uh, honestly, the, the thing that popped up in my head was the color pink. So I don't know how that right. relates. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> being honest. Uh, you, you live in a nice world, Rachel. <laughs> So, what should flash through your mind is the face of Newt Gingrich. Oh, God, okay. <laughs> so, you. while Gingrich did not explicitly <laughs> tie himself to the organization, he, benefit, he benefited from speaking gigs, had close ties to the organization, had the same talking points that they did, and, and held what's his it called colleagues. Again? Uh, it was the Progress and Freedom Foundation. Okay. And yeah. his colleagues from an organization he helped found called GOPAC founded it. It is, you might thus say, enough to tie the two together. So it's probably worth stepping back a sec because we're already getting into the weeds and I'm starting to feel like Charlie just putting strings and (laughs) writing Pepe Sylvia. So what we... hmm? You're doing great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I try. So what we've talked about so far is a meandering, mealy-mouthed document that takes a brave stance that the internet is for corporations that regulation is bad and the marketplace is inherently good. Chairs talking points with Newt Gingrich and in Randian fashion claims that all the problems in society are solely due to the state and not at all the marketplace. But so what? I'm going to take a wild guess and say that you guys have not heard of the authors, Esther Dyson, George Gilder, George Keyworth, and Alvin Toffler. Am I right? Correct. Yeah. And further, this thing is confusing and wonky. Who is going to pay attention to this, much less report on it? And you know what? You're right. It's a pain in the ass to read. And unless you're already on the same page as those people, you won't pay attention to it. And yeah, sure, people like Peter Thiel, who founded Palantir, was part of PayPal and is evil. Uh, Jimmy Wales, the guy who found who spun up Wikipedia. And, you know, Elon Musk. And uh, Sergey Brin, the, one of the Google guys, all of these guys, they paid attention to it and they hit like and they hit subscribe. But what does that matter? Well, if there's one thing you have to credit them for, it's that these early cyber libertarians or they call themselves this sometimes techno libertarians. Knew that the cyberspace Magna Carta was not particularly inspiring. So what did they do? You want to guess? I have a feeling I'm going to hear the name Moldbug very soon. 
I know what mold now. It's not mold bug, but I know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know they tried to write more compelling stuff. They did. Uh, so these guys turned to one of the guys from the Grateful Dead. Interesting. What? Yeah. John Perry Barlow is the guy's name. And to me, he seems the epitome of a right place, right time kind of guy. After reading articles about him and some brief outlines of his biography, there's nothing particularly outstanding about his background. He came from Wyoming. He stumbled into very prestigious schools. He got a contract how, to write a you, novel. Sorry, how do you do that? How do you stumble into prestigious schools? You, what does that even mean? You can <laughs> do these things in the 60s where you're just like, oh, That's I'm just going to apply to a thing. Yeah. And what? I got it. <laughs> I forget the, the university system wasn't always like it is today. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. My uh, dad went yeah, to Berkeley on a full ride scholarship with a GED. Wow. They yeah. paid him to go to Berkeley with a GED. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. It, this, it was a wildly different time. <laughs> One that is dead and buried. <laughs> Uh, so he made it onto the Berkeley football team just because he was 6'2", 240. He was just walking on the quad, and the coach was like, this seemed like a big fella, and you got a firm handshake. Come on down. Oh, my God. That's crazy. That's it was just terrible. a wild time to be a white man. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. I've got a friend who is now in his 80s, but he... Yeah, he was kind of the same way. Like, he was yeah. in Arizona at this time, I think. And... He just somehow like lucked into a bunch of money and just took a couple of years off and went across Europe, India, and then <laughs> bought some land out in what is now a national park. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Okay. That's enough. <laughs> and so this guy, John Mary Barlow, he got, you know, prestigious schools. He got a contract to write a novel. I don't know how. Uh, and then he, he made friends with Andy Warhol and Timothy Leary. And then he started writing lyrics for the Grateful Dead. And at the same time he was writing lyrics for the dead, he was working on Dick Cheney's first congressional campaign. Holy fucking shit. <laughs> it's like of you were playing you Scrabble and like you just had all of these different words and you put them into one sentence and it's, and it's real. It's true. <laughs> Of course it yep. was. <laughs> That's some fucking sense. Oh, yeah. He's something. Uh, so go figure, right? A cattle rancher from Wyoming was an early backer of one of the guys who truly destroyed all promise of long-term hope in America. Dick Cheney, who much like... Um, oh, my God. We just mentioned him and I'm blanking on his name now. Um, New Gingrich. Murray... Um, um, Rothbard. Murray Rothbard, yeah. Uh, who found Anne Rand to be too right wing, yeah. too left wing. Dick Cheney found Henry Kissinger to be too left wing. <laughs> These are the kind of guys we're dealing with. Oh, oh I need to, I need to put some money on that tontine. <laughs> yeah, not about that. Uh, so Barlow, uh, his politics are outwardly messy. Uh, he. Later in his life, he disavowed Cheney. He claimed to be an anarchist, but through his like writings and his articles and everything, I get the sense that no matter what bullshit he said, he was a through-and-through money-driven Republican from day one. Uh, 
basically, I don't like this man's life, and I think it's a shame that he had any impact on society whatsoever. Let's talk about it some more. <laughs> so as the big corporations were spinning up support for the deregulation of the internet and starting to en enlist the support of people like Newt Gingrich, Barlow and some of his pals founded the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Today, the EFF is probably best known for mo mobilizing support against some pretty draconian regulation that would have weaponized the internet as a tool for surveillance even more than it already is. But at the start, the EFF was pretty solidly a nest of nerds who just wanted cyberspace to be an unregulated space controlled by what they termed the people. But us, we're no fools. We know that by the people, they really mean the people with a lot of money and broadband access. Yeah. As part of this, Barlow wrote a Declaration of the Inde Independence of Cyberspace. It is essentially the same as the Cyberspace Magna Carta, but a lot catchier. If the Magna Carta is math rock, the Declaration is Dave Matthews. Here are the first several paragraphs. I'm going to read them, and then I want us to talk about the parallels. Okay? So, <clears throat> strap in. Governments of the industrial world, you wary giants oh, of flesh Christ. and steel, I come from cyberspace, the oh. new home of mind. On behalf of the source book, you losers. On behalf of the future, I ask you to leave. Ask you of the past to leave us alone. You are not welcome among us. You have no sovereignty where we gather. We have no elected oh. government, nor are we likely to have one. So yeah, I this address this right fantasy. Yeah. yeah. This is basically Ready Player One. Which, which <laughs> oh, these guys fucking love Ready Player that One. That is a terrible book. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have no elected government, nor are we likely to have one. So I address you with no greater authority than that which with liberty itself always speaks. I declare the global social space we are building to be naturally independent of the tyrannies you seek to impose on us. You have no moral right to rule us, nor do you possess any methods of enforcement. We have true reason to fear. Governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. You have neither solicited nor received ours. We did not invite you. You do not know us, nor do you know our world. Cyberspace does not lie within your borders. Mm. Do not think that you can build it as though it were a public construction project. You cannot. It is an act of nature, and it grows itself through our collective actions. There's more. Oh. Hold on. <laughs> you have not engaged in our great and gathering conversation, nor did you create the wealth of our marketplaces. <laughs> you do not know our culture, our ethics, or the unwritten codes that already provide our society more order than could be obtained by any of your impositions. You claim there are problems among us that you need to solve. You use this claim as an excuse to invade our precincts. Many of these problems don't exist. Where there are real conflicts, where there are wrongs, we will identify them and address them by our means. We are forming our own social contract. This governance will arise according 
to the conditions of our world, not yours. Our world is different. I feel like they could have gotten their message across um, a little bit clearer, you know? Like, uh, like Rachel, this, this guy wrote for the Grateful Dead. Famously a clear band. <laughs> I, I have. No, oh, it seemed like at one point Shark passed out. I yeah, <laughs> I was in pain. I entered a fugue state. <laughs> I like that they're like, the internet is not a public works project as it's currently a public works project. That was one of the things I really liked. Yes, um, it was DARPAnet. Yeah. Defense work. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you know? One of my favorite things about the genre of guy is that some of them are actually good at writing code and um, mm -hmm. they make spaces where they try this. Have you guys ever heard of the metaverse slash video game thing, the central land? Yeah. I, no. uh, did you, are, <laughs> did you watch the folding ideas video? I did watch the folding ideas video. I've also been obsessed with Decentraland for a while. Okay, cool. It's one of these things that crops up every so often where it's these fucking losers who like speed run this idea of like creating a system where there is no government. And then they just like from Babylon to about <laughs> now, they just rush through civilization and then crater into the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, Fucking incredible. And they come up all the time. And like the Central Land's a great example because it's the one happening at the moment. It's this metaverse project that has basically instituted all of their thoughts about like the market. No government, the market will decide. So what it basically is is like five people with infinite Decentraland property dictating the world for everyone else yeah. who's also a libertarian weirdo who basically like construct capital who basically construct communism as a way to like counter the forces of capital in their own weird libertarian cesspit and then the income the like class war that happens between like the broke anarcho-capitalists <laughs> and the rich anarcho-capitalists leads to the destruction of society in a way that i'm sure is nowhere prescient for what's coming <laughs> um it's fucking incredible like you can see them try this and fail over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And it's fucking stupid. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 It's what the crypto island thing was a was the crypto island the thing, previous yeah. example that we'll be talking about in a couple of episodes, yeah. rest assured. And the worst part about it is that like these guys know something about technology. They're yeah. just morons. Well, the Barlow did government. That is what there. is yeah, he did. Barlow was not a technology guy yeah. he was and, just and then writer. the federal government steps <laughs> in to do the dumbest fucking thing a person could do and make these guys more justified than they should be yeah like i'm sure it's gonna come up when they confiscated a role-playing game um oh god i yeah i i don't think i wrote about there's only so much yeah. We're already going to go for a couple of hours. I, I didn't know. I didn't talk yeah. about the fact that the FBI started going after copies of cyberpunk. Yeah. So the FBI <laughs> thought that a role playing game was a manual for hacking, which yeah. it was not. It's not surprising. And no, so when I said when I called you guys edge runners earlier, that comes from cyberpunk. 
Yeah. And so these guys, like right when these guys were becoming the weirdos they were being, a cyberpunk game came out and the FBI said it was a manual for hacking and confiscated it. So then all these guys were like, look, the federal government's trying to destroy freedom on the internet because they confiscated this role-playing game. And so like, these guys are dumb and the FBI just like, throws them fodder for their bullshit like trees into a wood chipper so they can just spray us all with their fucking nonsense oh yep. god i'm so upset <laughs> i feel like that's a tagline oh god i'm so upset <laughs> all right yeah 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 um so that's basically the gist of it uh what i wrote and then what shark said But the important thing about Barlow, again, is that he desperately, oh, is not that he desperately wanted to take a poet's pen to the internet movement. Uh, The important thing is that he became the guy that a lot of prominent publications talked to. And for the most part, when they talked to him, the conversation was not about regulation or Newt Gingrich's plans to cripple the U.S. government for the foreseeable future. No, the conversation became about the wonders of cyberspace. Barlow became the the vehicle to allow the conversation be devoid of politics. And I was kind of started down this path when I read a uh, Jacobin article about uh, by a guy named David Columbia titled Cyber Liber- Cyber mm, sorry Cyber Libertarians Digital Deletion of the Left. And then another article titled Making Common Sense of Cyber Libertarian Ideology: The Journalistic Consecration of John Perry Barlow. By a guy named Michael, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, I think it's Buzis. The former is just about what you think it was. By getting such a massive jump on turning the conversation around the internet into one of depoliticized space that had enough trappings of both wings of libertarian politics, right-wing libertarians were able to ensure that they controlled the core of the policies around the web. The founding documents of the cyber-libertarian movement both the Cyberspace Magna Carta and the Declaration of the Independence of the Internet both talk a big game about freedom and personal authority, but leave giant gaping holes when it comes to protecting people from the ravenous claws of the market. As frenemy of the pod, Noam Chomsky says, Oh God, what have I done? Oh, when I was slapping the keyboard, <laughs> that is what happened. Wow. All right. As frenemy of the pod says, uh, Noam Chomsky says, for tyranny, meaning tyranny by unaccountable private concentrations of power, is the worst kind of tyranny you can imagine. So anyway, Barlow. He became broadly prominent through publishing in Wired, which, as Michael Buzis puts it, more than other tech publications of the era, bridged the gap between technology journalism and lifestyle reporting, linking tech consumerism with ideas like liberation. Wired is still, of course, one of the major tech publications out there. The article continues, In this frontier, Barlow's politics were represented as a lack of politics because they promoted the liberating potential of the technology for individuals and often ignored the consequences of deregulating the technology to facilitate this potential. So as tends to happen with these things, you have a core group of true believers who establish the ground rules for how people in their sphere are going to operate, but that's not enough. You need to re- you need to reach people. That mode of thought brings in someone who can put things in a way that regular people and the political class understand. In this case, it's Barlow using terms and tones that aren't far off from the civil rights movement. 
surprising no one, the New York Times began interviewing him, treating him like an expert on technology, despite the fact that he most assuredly was not. And this is the thing about tech journalism, is that it's the most credulous bullshit in the whole world. It's people who do not know how the technology works. Listening to people who barely know how the technology works, talk about politics that neither of them understand. It's just like no one knows enough to ever be like, what the fuck are we talking about? Yeah. Silicon Valley is always the best (laughs) satire of this stuff. That's such a great show. Yeah. So on top of the New York Times and Wired doing this stuff, uh, the FBI started considering him an expert on hacking. Partly because he wrote, (laughs) partly because he wrote about meeting hackers and referring to them in hushed tones, putting ominous overtones on groups like the Legion of Doom, even though that's a fucking comic books reference. Sick. (laughs) (laughs) Just a bunch of fucking nerds. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like these guys like. There was a time in computers where someone at the FBI saw the movie War Games and thought that's what hacking was and was like endlessly scared of that happening. And just like anyone could be a hacking I, expert if they could do like four Linux terminal commands. I think that still describes a lot of the FBI. Yeah, that's fucking fair. <laughs> yeah. If you could like change directory in Ubuntu, you were like the world's most dangerous man. Can you get it? Can you, can you access their GitHub? Yeah, yeah. Like, fuck Get a hell. pull request on that stat. <laughs> yeah, they were furious at the idea that some 17-year-old with Cheeto dust on their fingers could slam through screens have that originated seen, on the Matrix. Have you ever seen the movie The Core? No. Ah, that's a that's a classic shitty disaster movie. The core of the earth stops spinning. Oh uh, yeah. And so nice. they have to they have to drop nuke they have to like drill down to it and nuke it so it'll nice. start spinning again. There's a scene where uh this hacker guy gets detained by the FBI and he's being questioned and he just starts going one zero zero one 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 zero 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 and they're like, What are you doing? And he says, with that language, I can do anything I want and you can't oh stop God. me. And the reaction is, we need him on the team. <laughs> wow. It's one. It's a great movie. <laughs> That's like a movie. When I was back in Nashville, I would just have that on repeat in the background when I was doing anything. Because anytime I looked up for a break, it would just be fun. Anyway, Jesus so once Barlow began... <laughs> Once Barlow became entrenched to this degree, certain things were looked over and his writing became more tied to politics once again. On a subtle level, we turn to Bouziz uh, once again. In his writing on the internet, Barlow can compared to uh, tech adopters to Columbus in glowing light. He continuously used golden age phrases like Columbus discovering unclaimed real estate and regularly leaned on colonialist metaphors. Barlow's settlers were claiming real estate that could ostensibly be open to anyone and may have already begun to be populated by plenty of people who were not driven by the cyber-libertarian ideology he articulated. That those cybernauts felt the need to stake a claim and make a private territory out of a potentially limitless space shows how colonialist ideas about territory, resources, and privilege informed cyber-libertarianism. And it goes without saying that the reason so many Americans rushed out to the plains was to nab land and become the new aristocracy. 
with land become yeah with land comes power and for a lot of spaces on the internet you can make the same argument just with ip addresses and domain names on a less subtle level the ties with gingrich grew new grew more overt quote the aspen aspen conference where barlow became chummy with newt gingrich in media reports became an inflection point explicitly uh, linking cyber libertarianism with an emerging movement in Republican Party politics. Other cyber libertarian voices are quoted alongside Barlow's and reinforcing reinforcing this connection. Despite the depoliticized rhetoric of cyber libertarianism in general, these statements are often overtly uh, political and even partisan. Barlow and Stuart Brand, the publisher of the Whole Earth Catalog and founder of The Well, even depict Vice President Al Gore, a prominent Democratic voice on technology issues, as an authoritarian when it comes to internet policy. The ideological line in the sand has been drawn by this point, and Barlow and other tech luminaries found themselves on the side of an increasingly deregulatory Republican establishment. Barlow's cyber-libertarian vision was quite adaptable to neoliberal ends in the 21st, 21st century. The internet would soon be dominated by a new generation of corporations that would largely go unregulated by what Car- Barlow called the governments of the industrial world, you worry giants of flesh and steel, in his declaration. So from this guy, you get a lot of the ties to a right-wing base that you see in the actions of people who govern the internet. If you find yourselves wondering just why in the world every goddamned website on the internet is out to sell your data and be little more than a glorified ad platform, remember, the people who were most influenced by people like Barlow or the writers of the Cyberspace Magna Carta or fuck Ayn Rand. Why does Twitter suck so much to use and do so little to combat hate speech and white supremacy? Well, Jack Dorsey, the founder CEO, one CEO, is, if not an outright libertarian, someone who has strong, strong leanings toward Randian politics. Why is Google, and by extension YouTube, so eager to build an algorithm seemingly tailor-made to boost the worst impulses of humanity? Because that makes money, and people like Sergey Brin, who co-founded Google, believe that the market and greed is good. But that's not all Barlow did. He is also one of the founders of the EFF, along with fo- former Lotus Corp president Mitch Kapoor and John Gilmore, an early employee of Sun Microsystems. Now, the EF the EFF is a tricky, tricky group to talk about. I don't say that to mean like they're schemers or anything. I mean it in the sense that they're a real mixed bag. While they have an un- undoubtedly anti-state focus, they don't tend to mess with private sector stuff, i.e. they're not anti-market. The EFF has generally been on the right side of anti-surveillance lobbying and have provided great protest resources and, uh, as well, internet privacy resources. They also publish, uh, regularly publish work by Cory Doctorow, who is broadly a solid dude. But they have also an unmistakable corporate bent. From Columbia, as of 2013, out of the 11 members of, a, of its current board of directors, Six are either overt libertarians and or self-described entrepreneurs or corporate executives. Today, the board seems to have diversified a bit more. The, the, the proportion of executives seems similar, although less active in actually being executives. 
for me, <clears throat> the EFSF is a case study in how you must be really, really on your toes with working uh, on working with internet advocacy groups. You can't fall into the trap of blindly trusting them, again, because of their heavy ties to corporations, but you should also be willing to sometimes take advantage of what they provide. You kind of have to think about it from a moral perspective, I guess. And I'm going to paraphrase probably not great uh, Murray Bookchin, the better of the two Murrays. Yeah, the other end of the Murray spectrum. Yeah. Uh, moral behavior in the marketplace is basically impossible due to, in no small part, the acceptance of lesser evils that are presented as alternatives and the market's need for always expanding growth at the expense of everything else. In the EFF's case, the focus on government overreach is valid but allows a lesser evil of growing walled gardens that do more to restrict net mobility than governments outside of China or North Korea. Uh, I'm going to stop. Do you know what walled gardens refers to? Mm -mm. Okay. Walled gardens is basically the idea <clears throat> that... Um, you consolidate access to everything within a certain space. Uh, the The way that I first ran into it was a term as a term is when you're working with like a router and you're trying to diagnose something on a network, you put the router in walled garden mode means that it meaning that it blocks access to a lot of different things and only allows access into the parts that are going to let you diagnose what's going wrong. Mm, okay. What it means now is. Uh, outside of that context is like walled gardens refers to like Facebook. So like everything oh, okay. only within Facebook. So <clears throat> that's kind of where all of this internet stuff. And is I mean, I think that's like what it's a lot of this is kind of abstract, but like the construction of these walled gardens yep. is um, kind of like what Facebook, like it's the Amazon model of like, we're a video platform or a retailer where uh, as like everything in life becomes like one service is what they're trying to do on the internet. Like one yeah. thing will dominate all things. Yeah. That's, <clears throat> that's the way everything is going. And uh, it's uh, yeah. From there, we find ourselves with the opening salvos that have established the common language of the internet. One that's led us to this point where AI aggregators are lifting art from people across the internet, where crypto grifters have convinced industries that the blockchain will make them money somehow. It's truly a brave new world. And before we close out, I want to talk a little bit about how we, the left, can use this thing for good. Uh, one thing that Shark already mentioned is like Tor browsers uh, and yeah. using alternate means to access internet spaces beyond firing up Firefox. Um, that's always important. For me, there's another obvious thing, and it's it's hard, but don't use Instagram, Facebook, whatever for your organizing. Uh, I it, it is very easy. And you can get a good reach, but the people who own it, who moderate it, are not your friends and do not share your values at all. And it's really easy to get snooped on if you use anything that's publicly owned, I by also, which I mean owned by a public company. On I the also think like there's a thing that happens there, like the Situationist, which are like a philosophical movement in France, talk about the spectacle, and the spectacle mm. is like this thing that 
subsumes everything in it to power capitalism. And I think if you've ever been in like a left-wing protest space, you know the Instagram activist who like, no, regardless of how many fucking hammer and sickles they throw up on their Instagram or their Twitter, like the point is to get attention. It's to participate in this market activity. And like, as long as you're participating in that market activity, revolution is not happening. You're not doing meaningful work. I'm sorry. Like if that runs tangential to the real work you're doing, that's fine. But if you have a lot of followers and you think that makes you something interesting, it doesn't. You're just doing a capitalism. You're just a capitalist. Please stop. If you end your megaphone spiel with your Instagram hashtag. Yeah, go fuck yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So we need to find or create alternatives. This means secure private servers with proper moderation. One option that currently exists, it's not perfect, but is better, it's federated media platforms like Mastodon. Again, Mastodon is not perfect, but it does allow for greater control by moderators and server admins, and thus more surety about where your message is going, or at least who's going to see it. We'll be going into that more in episode two of the series. The second point is less obvious. If you use the internet as part of your organizing, think of creative ways to avoid giving the bastards your money. That might be using free software like LibreOffice or Ubuntu. It might be open source software. Just make sure you know who's making it and what sorts of sneaky add-ons come with it. In the third point, I'm going to quote again from David Columbia about the central thing I'm going to uh, I'm going to talk about by kicking off this trio of episodes on the web with a rant about libertarians. And here's what he says. At the at bottom, cyber libertarianism, cyber libertarianism holds that today's problems can be solved by simply construing them as engineering and software problems. Not only is this false, but in many ways it can make the problems worse. Since much of the thought grounding it emerges from the right, encouraging mass computerization of a, as a political project typically encourages the spread of rightist principles, even if they are cloaked in leftist rhetoric. When we assume that the goals of the left are promoted just by digital innovation, we too easily forget to think carefully and deeply about how to articulate these goals and to work with others who share them. We put faith in a technocrat in a technocratic progressivism that does not clearly emerge from leftist foundations, and that, without close and careful work, is unlikely to support those foundations. Most worryingly, we put aside active efforts to solve social problems and advance leftist perspectives by giving in to a technological form of magical thinking that is the opposite of engaged political action. This is all very good, but I just want to point out that Duolingo kept throwing a fucking palantir ad at me that started with this. Quote, it turns out that many ethical problems are technical problems. So fuck you, Duolingo. Fuck you. Fucking Palantir on your goddamn website. Go fuck yourself, man. Fuck you, Owl. There's going to be a lot more of this on our next episodes about Web 2.0 and then Web 3.0, but I really want to hammer home. Fuck you. Yeah. Also, one of the best things you can do is that these are finely tuned and expensive things that companies do to control your entire life. Fuck with them. You can fuck up your ad profile. You can fuck up the way in which you market your attention. And if one person does it, it's meaningless. 
But if everyone does it, it's the destruction of a system of data that runs the world today. Yep. The situationists who I, I'm reading right now and obsessed with have this idea that like city planning controls how you interact with your city. So just start walking in ways that are unexpected and strange as a way to enjoy your city in a new light <laughs> um, that you wouldn't do like otherwise. And the same thing happens on the internet. Log on as routinely as you can and just go to places that you shouldn't be. <laughs> if one person does it, they're just a weirdo. I know that from experience. But if everyone does it, it really damages this infrastructure. Yeah. It will cause chaos. I love it. Yeah. yeah. It's a simple thing to do. Yeah. I will say one thing I was thinking about when you were talking was the fact that like I don't often think about the fact that I should be using an, a different kind of browser instead of Google. Like I want that information to be more widely shared. And I feel like the majority yeah. of the people that I know wouldn't know anything about like using, uh, you know, not Google and fucking like, whatever else, you know? Brave is a great one. It's it's basically Chrome without all of the ad monitoring. I do, yeah, that's nice. Um, Firefox, I'm a big fan of Firefox. I think Firefox plus like Adblock Origin has made doing anything on the internet a lot easier. Uh, okay. And then pairing that with like a, a decent VPN. Hell, just, you can download Opera. Opera has a built-in VPN. And just understanding the governing principle of the internet and possibly all things in life that if you're consuming something and not paying for it that's because you're the product yeah <clears throat> yep. and like that doesn't mean you should stop using it that just means you should fuck with it back yeah barry also agrees yeah he went <laughs> and yeah that's that's the highest form of praise that he can <laughs> <Yeah>. give <laughs> so i guess final thoughts I'm really excited to hear about Web 2.0 and Web 3.0. That's the first time those sentences have been spoken out loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but all of this is like, it's really wild. I never learned much about how the internet was started. So this is really all fascinating. Yeah, uh, again, I didn't go into it a lot because of time, but... Um, yeah, it's it's a very short jump from those two documents to Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and, by extension, Mark Zuckerberg. This is all within the last you know thirty years at this point, and yeah, fun. <laughs> <laughs> My final thought, which I'm sure I'll bring up over and over and over again, but like, do not let the internet become mundane. It is mm. the single coolest thing yep. that humanity has ever made. Like, it's not close. I mean, maybe like penicillin is a close second. But like, the idea that you can open a thing on something in your home and learn about anything. Yeah, is, it's it's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, it is. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And like, the idea that that should become like a mundane space that's largely used as a way to get to work and view billboards while you do it. Yeah. 
is a horrific thing to do to that. It is like, I think roads are a great analogy. It is like turning the city street into a highway. It becomes just a way to like travel to shit and consume advertising. And the (laughs) city street should be a marketplace and a gathering space and a community center. And like, don't let the internet become roadified. Like, fucking kill Robert Moses. If you can go back in time, kill Robert (laughs) Moses, the city planner of New York, do it. And don't let these people do that to the internet. It's not a fucking billboard. It's, yeah. Yeah, don't let it become mundane. Don't make it a parking lot. It's the coolest thing we've ever done. Yep. Support them. All right. Go fuck yourself, listener. Mm